Lord, you're so good. And I thank you for the invitation you give us. Lord, first to come to you for salvation, to hear your voice, Lord, and your spirit drawing us to you so that we can know Christ, that we can be saved and forgiven. Oh, what a glorious gift it is. And I thank you, Lord, that we have your word to teach us and guide us in your spirit to make your word alive to us and to give us understanding. Oh, what a glorious gift we have in Christ. I pray as we seek you in your word this morning that you would guide us. Father, that we would hear your voice, that you would remove anything that may be distracting us, anything that may be hindering us from hearing and responding to you. I pray that you would be glorified in this time, Lord, that we would leave today seeing you a little more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we finished up, really, this scene between Jesus and Matthew. Uh, two weeks ago, Jesus called Matthew. He said, come follow me, and Matthew followed him. Last week, we talked about the, the feast or the dinner that Matthew gave, which was very cool. Uh, the microphone, if it's going to do that, I'm going to grab, uh, I might grab the pulpit mic if it keeps going that way. But... We'll see what happens. It's just misbehaving a little bit. Where was I? Dinner. Dinner with sinners. And nobody laughed at the title of my message. And I vowed to you that I would never have a rhyming title again. I may break that promise, but it'll be a while at the very least. And Jesus sat with all these tax collectors and various sinners and the Pharisees complained about Jesus keeping company with them. And we talked about, A, uh, the importance of, uh, if we're going to win the lost, right, we've got to be around the lost. And that's what Jesus was doing. Then he talked about fasting. And then we talked about new wine and old wineskins and all of that stuff. Now it happened, verse 1 of chapter 6, on the second Sabbath after the first, that he went through the grain fields. And his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. Some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, Have you not read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat? And he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that he might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage 
and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So on several occasions um, over the course of the last few years, we've looked at Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath and our relationship to the Sabbath as followers of Christ. If you would like, you can take a listen to our messages in Hebrews chapter 4, which is the last time we really delved into this. But today we're going to return to the topic of Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath with a reminder of what the Sabbath means to us as followers of Christ. And it's something we are going to revisit later on in Luke. It comes up on several occasions. Now, if you remember all the way back to November... Uh, do you remember back to November? See, I already broke my promise not to rhyme. It's not the title of a message, though. Uh, when we first started the book of Luke, one of the things we talked about is that each of the gospel writers had a different focus. Matthew's, now, now, each of the gospel writers presented Jesus as God. Each of them presented him as Messiah, right? Each of them presented him in working miracles and various things, but they each had an emphasis Matthew's emphasis was Jesus as Messiah, as not just the anointed one of God, but as the Jewish Messiah. So Matthew, among the gospel writers, quotes a lot more Old Testament prophecy in reference to Jesus as the Messiah. Mark presents Jesus as a servant, right? Mark's book is very fast-paced, and it focuses on a lot of Jesus' actions in serving the people, even though very similar elements to Matthew and Luke. Luke focuses on the humanity of Christ. And I think that's one of the reasons Luke revisits the Sabbath so often, is he will eventually, uh, right, we won't see it today, but eventually Jesus will talk about how, you know, the Sabbath was not, or wait, the man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. I might have that backwards. Sabbath, we, when we get there, I'll remember I should have put it in my notes, but I didn't. The Sabbath was not made for man, but man for the Sabbath. Is that right? Right, we're good. It's strong. It's Cynthia's fault now. And Linda, they agreed, right? So just in case anybody's listening to this later, and that, that's not correct, uh, you can still blame me. I still should have put it in my notes. Uh, but we see the humanity of Jesus, which is so important for us to understand. In the early church, right, when you get to the book of John, John is all about Jesus as God about Jesus' divinity. But there was so much contention uh, in the early church and throughout certain periods of church history about Jesus' divinity, right, about him being God, that, that they spent so much time making sure everybody understood, and I'm not necessarily talking about the biblical writers, but I'm talking about uh, theologians and, and the giants of our faith that have come before us. They spent a lot of time making sure we understood that Jesus is God. And we need to, we must understand that Jesus is God. 100% God and 100% man. But oftentimes, we focus on his divinity to the exclusion of his humanity. And we can't do that. Because as we studied in multiple places in the book of Hebrews, he took on human flesh so he could relate to us. He took on human flesh so that we could see that he went through everything we went through or will go through 
or have gone through. He experienced pain. He experienced hunger. He experienced betrayal. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like, well, he probably never really got anxious or depressed, but he knows what it's like to face situations that were overwhelming, right? He understood. Go read the prayer in the garden. Sweating. When we get there in Luke, blood, because the capillaries in his head start to burst since he was under so much stress. He gets it. But the only way he could get it was in his humanity. The only way we can understand that he knows everything we're going through. He's not some far-off deity sitting on a mountain that we can't approach. He is God who came to us in the flesh so that we could have a revelation of who the Father was to us and that so we would have a way to relate to the divine. And of course, then he furthered that by giving us his Holy Spirit, but that's another study. Of course, talking about his humanity and divinity is another study as well. But I just wanted to remind you of that because uh, we talked a lot about that early on in the book of Luke. So we get back to our text, verse 1 of chapter 6. It happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields. The disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him. How he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he said to them, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So we have this scene of the disciples plucking heads of grain and rubbing them in their hands to eat on the Sabbath. This was something that was not only allowed, but actually commanded by God to be allowed in the law. A uh, couple scriptures that you can look up when you have a chance. Leviticus 19.9, Leviticus 23.22, and Deuteronomy 23, 25 through 26. So this was not only part of Israel's welfare program, right? If you were poor and you were hungry, you, you could go into somebody's grain field and eat or into their vineyard or if you were passing by and they had fig trees, whatever it might be. But it was also just allowed, you know, you're out, you're, you're on your way home from work. Uh, it's, it's late in the evening and and, you know, you're a couple miles from home and you walk by, you know, uh, whoever's field. And so you, you kind of go in there and you grab a few things of grain and you rub it in your hands. If you've never done it, it's very cool. Uh, we had a friend who was a farmer uh, when we lived up in North Dakota who invited us out and we actually got to do that. He grew wheat and so we plucked ahead and you rub it in your hands and you get rid of all the, the husk in the outside and you're left with this little kernel and you can eat it. Um, personally, I think it tastes better once it's turned into a cake, but you know, um, it was still pretty good. And you know, but you could do that and eat, uh, right? You weren't allowed to actually harvest their field. You couldn't go through with a bag and just take a bunch, but you could take enough to eat. You could do the same thing, like I said, uh, whatever it was they were growing. Now the Pharisees looked at this and they judged them because they thought this was working on the Sabbath. And they called it unlawful. Because you weren't technically allowed to harvest on the Sabbath. But what they meant by that is you could not hook up 
your oxen and you couldn't go out there with a sickle and actually harvest large portions of your field, that was working on the Sabbath. All they were doing was eating. You were allowed to eat on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees called this unlawful, even though the law said you could do it. Because it wasn't the law that they were holding to, it was their legalistic tradition. Going back to what we talked about last week, new wines and old wineskins, right? Their tradition is this old wineskin that Jesus is now bursting. And, and it's just insane because their traditions, which they thought were meant to uphold the law, were actually contradicting the law. And we run into that danger anytime we elevate tradition above Scripture. Jesus warned us about this in Matthew chapter 15. It's nine verses, but it's worth reading all of it. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem, you guys know where they're from now? Jerusalem. They came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. Um, the Jewish people, right, we have commentaries. If you go in my office, I have a bunch of commentaries on various books in the Bible. If you open my Bible software on my laptop, I have a whole bunch more. And I love commentaries, but I never take the word of a commentator over the word of Scripture. Because sometimes I'll read a commentary and I'm like, nope, that ain't right. And that's okay. Um, and it's not because I'm always right and other people are always wrong. That's not what I'm getting at. It's just sometimes well-meaning commentators interpret something differently than I would or than I've been taught. Now, the Jewish people, they had the, the Old Testament. And then I always get these mixed up, but they had two books of commentary. One was the Mishnah and one was the Talmud. And I can never remember which one came first. So for sake of argument, and this might be backwards, let's say the Mishnah came first. I actually think it was the Talmud that came first, but what difference does it make? Right? We're, we're probably not going to read either. Uh, so they had the law. They had the Old Testament. Then a bunch of Hebrew rabbis, right? They wrote whichever one came first. So for the sake of argument today, the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was a commentary on the law and the Old Testament. But then that wasn't good enough. Right? That wasn't good enough. So they had to write the other one, the Talmud, which was a commentary on the first one. Right? It wasn't a second commentary on the scripture. It was a commentary on the first commentary on the scripture. Right? Do you see the problem here? And what they're talking about here, this tradition of the elders with hand washing, had nothing to do with the law. Right? The law had rules about being hygienic, right? You're not supposed to touch dead bodies. And if you touch a dead body, you better take a bath, right? Fair enough. Well, they had taken this to an extreme that they had a specific way of washing your hands. So it took three people to wash one person's hands. You had one person that held a bowl underneath your hands. You had another person that held a pitcher of water above your hands. Then you would hold your hands up in the air, like picture a surgeon who just scrubbed up for, for surgery. right? You would hold your hands and they would pour water down your hands 
and you would let it run up to you almost till it got to your elbows. Then you tip your hands over. And then they'd pour water here so that all the dirt would then run into the bowl. And that was the proper way to wash your hands. And the disciples didn't do that. Now, this doesn't mean that disciples didn't wash their hands. It just meant that they didn't do it that way. And that's what they were complaining about. Not that they had actually broken the law, but that they had this silly rule about how you should wash your hands. And they didn't do it that way. So Jesus said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Now, what do you think is worse? Transgressing transgressing the tradition of man or using the tradition of man to transgress the word of God? Right? It's a pretty easy answer, I think. And here is Jesus' example. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Now let me explain this. This is what they would do. It was commanded in the law to take care of your family. That's all there was to it. No retirement program back then. So that just like in, in the early uh, days of America and other countries that were primarily agrarian, you had a lot of kids because it meant two things. One, you had people to work on the farm or the ranch. And two, it meant when you got old, at least one of them would take care of you, hopefully. Right? That's why he did it. They did the same thing back then. But then you had these people who were pretty well off. And mom and dad were getting up in years, and yeah, they didn't really feel like taking care of mom and dad. So what they would say is, well, yeah, but all my money is, the word in Greek is korban. It's a gift to God. It's dedicated to God. Well, that sounds pretty spiritual, right? But here's what they would actually do. They wouldn't actually give the money to God. They would put it in their will that when they died, their wealth would go to the temple. But they could do whatever they wanted with it until they died. And so they would do that, and this was a tradition that made this allowable so that they could literally break God's law and not take care of their family, keep their money, spend it however they want, and then when they died, it was supposed to go to the temple. But I guarantee their kids found another loophole to keep that money. I know I would have, but I'm just saying they would break God's law with a loophole. And what does Jesus call them? He says, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And we're really excited, right, because the church would never do that. Right? We, we got past that. We learned Probably not. I'm reading this really interesting book. It's called The Five-Minute Church Historian. And one of the areas, of, and it's not really an area of theology, but one of the areas that I'm not particularly strong in is church history. So I came across this book. I'm like, perfect, right? And it has been very informative. I've enjoyed it greatly. 
But I was recently reading, um, they're talking about a lot of the martyrs um, that happened and, and, and were, were killed throughout church history, but they were killed by the church. Like Wycliffe. You guys remember uh, John Wycliffe, one of the first to translate the Bible into the common language. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't English. Or was he the first to translate it into English? And Huss was the first one to translate it into German. I don't remember. Anyways, they were both killed for it. Because they wanted the people to be able to read the Bible for themselves. Burned at the stake. Jan Huss, at least, was burned at the stake. I don't remember how Wycliffe died. Um, killed by the church. Why? Because the church had a tradition that only the priests could read the Bible. And the only proper way to read the Bible was in Latin. Which is stupid. Because the Bible wasn't written in Latin. Right? If you can only read it in a language other than the common language at the time, it should be Greek and Hebrew. Not Latin, but the Latin Vulgate was written and it was reserved for the elite of the church and the common person couldn't learn Latin because it took money to go to school. And that was the only place you could learn Latin because by the time the Roman Catholic Church came to power, Latin was not a common language anymore. Right? Can you think of any examples today? What about the King James Version of the Bible? Have you ever read a King James Version of the Bible? I love to read the King James Version of the Bible from time to time. The language is beautiful. It's confusing. The, the, um, the grammar is horrid. Um, but I know people that are like, nope, the King James Version of the Bible is the only version. Do you know that there are people out there who actually claim that the King James Version of the Bible was the version that Paul read? I want you to think about that. King James Version of the Bible, 1611. King James Version of the Bible. Did you know they call the King James Version of the Bible to this day the authorized version? Do you know that King James did not actually authorize it? He allowed it, but he never approved the final copy. He didn't. Do you know that the scholars who translated the King James Version of the Bible actually didn't know very much about Hebrew and Greek? And if you have a 1611 version of the King James Bible, there's a lot of translator errors in it. It's not because there's errors in the Bible. It's not because there's errors in the original. It's because the translators weren't that bright. Actually, I'll take that back. The translators were working from limited information. They did not know Hebrew and Greek the way we know it today. They didn't have the same source materials, right? They didn't have it. So they just, they lacked the information to do it well. So can you read the King James? Of course you can. I'll be honest, you ready? This one's going to blow a lot of you away. The NIV is actually a better translation than the 1611 King James. It just is. It's more accurate. Right? Now I read a new King James Version. Because in the late 70s, or the mid to late 70s, they said, you know what? The King James Version is awesome, and the source material for the King James Version is awesome, but nobody can read the King James Version very well anymore. Unless you grew up with it, it's just foreign to most of us. So they came up with the New King James Version, which is what I typically preach from. 
because it takes all the original source material and then translates it much, much better. And even then, if you were here last week, or not last week, but you were here on Wednesday for our study in 2 Samuel, there was still a mistake in the translation. Not a mistake in the Hebrew, but a mistake in the translation. They translated the Hebrew word for as 40. It was inaccurate, right? There's nothing wrong with the Hebrew, something wrong with the translator. Like I couldn't count to five with my cable earlier. It just happens. Should I get off that soapbox and move on? <laughs> the point is, I love it when people ask me, what, what translation of the Bible is the best translation of the Bible? Whichever one you will actually read. That's the best translation of the Bible. Because you can have a King James sitting on your shelf, or you can have a New Living Translation sitting on your lap. And I would much rather you have a New Living Translation sitting on your lap than a King James sitting on your shelf. Now, if you're like me, I have like five King James and 12 New King James and don't ask me how many Bibles I own. Um, it's a lot. And don't tell my wife, I just bought another one. Oh, wait. She's right there. Because you can't own enough Bibles. And I have a theory about that, and I promise we're going to move on. My theory about having all these Bibles is simply this. One day the trumpet's going to sound, and we're going to be raptured. And somebody is going to break into my house, because I'm going to be gone, and my whole family better be gone. But we're going to be gone, right? They're going to break into my house. And what are they going to find when they start rifling through my boxes? Dozens of Bibles. And hopefully they'll pick one up and they'll figure out what's going to happen. I really should leave copies of my Revelation notes around too, shouldn't I? Um, but they'd be like, wow, this guy had a lot of Bibles. What an idiot. Uh-huh. Let's move forward. He goes and he makes this case, again, from Scripture. Right? He talks about David when he was hungry and those who were with him, they went into the house of God and they ate the showbread. This all took place in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David was fleeing from Saul, and as he did so with some of his loyal followers, he asked the high priest for some food. Now, all that was available was the showbread which represented the 12 tribes of God, or the 12 tribes of Israel, before God. And this was baked once a week. When it was replaced, the priests got to eat the bread, but nobody else was allowed to eat it, right? That law is very clear in Leviticus chapter 24. Only the priests could eat the showbread. David was not a priest. The men who were with him were not priests. But the high priest gave it to David and his men anyway. And Saul actually killed the high priest and his entire family, except for one who escaped, because he helped David. So just hold that in the back of your mind. He says, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And the word for Lord here in Greek is the word kurios, or kurios. It looks like curious, kind of. K-U-R-I-O-S. And it means supreme in authority, controller, ruler, and master. In other words, Jesus is saying the Sabbath is his. And as such, he can do whatever he wants with it. When he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he goes, this is mine. I can do what I want with it. And we're going to come back to that thought too. Verse 6. It happened on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. 
So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. Isn't that a great reason to go to church? If you ever gone to church, or I'm going to go to church this Sunday, and I'm going to sit there, and I'm going to listen really intently, and hopefully I'll find something wrong with that sermon so I can accuse that pastor of wrongdoing. Don't go to church like that. Right? If you wake up and you think, I'm going to go and see what Jason says wrong today, stay home. Right? Take a nap. You probably just need a nap. Maybe you're hungry. I don't know what it is. Uh, if I ever do say something that you feel is wrong, feel free to come and talk to me. I would love to have that discussion with you, but I'll tell you what I, oh, I've said this before. If you think I've said something wrong, you have to prove it from Scripture. Right? It can't just be your opinion against mine. Because in that case, I'm going to think I'm right, and you're going to think you're right, and, well, that's not going to work out very well. But if you hear me preaching the Word, and I, I say something wrong, you go, yeah, because this Scripture says this. Oh, well, then we better talk about that. Because I'm human and very capable of making mistakes. Verse 8, But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So, in our second Sabbath scene, this is a different Sabbath. So it just says it happened on another Sabbath. We don't know if this was a week later, a month later, we don't know. But he heals this man with a withered hand, restoring it completely. And the Pharisees are watching, wanting to see what he'll do. And in the process, Jesus calls them out. And I love this. What's his question? I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil? To save a life or destroy? And this is clearly a rhetorical question with an easy answer. Even the law allowed for caring for an animal on the Sabbath. The law also allowed to circumcise a male child on the Sabbath if the eighth day after that child's birth happened to be a Sabbath day. Right? Jesus points that out in Matthew 12, and we'll see it again in Luke 14. It's always okay to do good, even if it's your day off. Right? Notice the faith of the man. Jesus told him to stand up. With the religious leaders standing there watching, he knew that this could get him kicked out of the synagogue, which would mean the end of his social life, would mean the end of his uh, uh, working life. It would mean the end of everything he had or could do. Right? That's what it would mean to get kicked out of the synagogue. And so when Jesus told him to stand up, he could go, nah, nope, nope, I'm good. I like the hand the way it is, you know, just move on. But he didn't. He stood up. He stood up with no guarantee that Jesus would heal him. Right? He didn't say, stand up so I can heal your hand. He just said, stand up. I like that. But he stood up, and he believed Jesus could. He took this step of faith, and Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, the Pharisees go out after this, filled with rage. Now, I think many of us have experienced anger. Have you ever been filled with rage? I've had a few occasions in my life. It's unpleasant to be around me 
especially if you're a wall. Um, thankfully, that doesn't happen, but very rarely. It's usually got to be something really bad to make me that angry. Um, but they go out filled with rage. And their hypocrisy is astounding to me. They were accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath law, which he was not doing. There was no law in or among the Sabbath that said you could not help somebody in need on the Sabbath day. There was no law that said that anywhere. What he was doing was challenging their tradition. I'm not going to get back on that soapbox. The law, however, expressly forbids plotting someone's murder. Did you know that? Exodus 21.14, if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. There is no law that says you can't help somebody on the Sabbath. None. There's an explicit law that says plotting someone's murder earns you the death penalty. Right? They're getting mad at Jesus, saying, oh, you're breaking the tradition of the Sabbath law, you can't do that, you can't do that. And they go out together, let's figure out how we can kill this guy. What? That's, that's just... I actually, I, I mean, we've all been hypocrites at times. I can't wrap my mind around that level of hypocrisy. I just, I just can't understand that. Mind-boggling. In Luke 12 and Matthew 10, Jesus commands us to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees. And what is the leaven of the Pharisees? It's hypocrisy. And there are many places in the Bible where we are taught to not be hypocrites. Uh, these should be in your notes. Romans 12, 9, Galatians 2, 13, 1 Timothy 4, 2, 1 Peter 2, 1. Great places. But hypocrisy is simply this, wearing a mask or playing a part. Actually, in Greek, you could use the word hypocrite for the word actor, right? Because what does an actor do? An actor plays a part. And if the actor is really good at playing their part, you believe them, right? Their, their acting is so good, it's, it's believable that they are actually this character. I love seeing actors in different roles, right? I'm a big, big movie guy. You guys know that. And I love seeing an actor in one movie where, you know, where they're being this, this goofy, right, slacker or whatever. And then in another movie, they're being super, super serious. And they do both really well, right? And I know, right, this is Jim Carrey and, and Jeff Bridges. Not Jeff Bridges. It is Jeff Bridges. Not Jeff Bridges. Daniels. Dan, Jeff Daniels. We had this argument the other day. And you were wrong. And now I'm, I was right. And now I'm wrong. And you reminded me. See, that's how marriage works. Um... But go watch Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels in Dumb and Dumber. Besides the fact that it's a great movie. It just really, I know it's stupid, but it's a great movie. Then go watch Jim Carrey in uh, The Truman Show. And go watch Jeff Daniels in uh, Fly Away Home. Same people. Great movies. Both of them, all of them are great movies. But just, that's what a good actor can do. Now, how good of an actor are you? Right? Can you claim, right? So if we put it back in here, you can go around the world showing off 
how spiritual you are, how religiously moral you are. But if anybody got a really good glimpse into your private life, they would see, oh, 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 oh. That's why I love what I do. I just stand up here and tell you what's wrong with me because it's a lot harder for me to be a hypocrite when you know what a screw-up I am. Right? Because I'm a sinner. Paul said, um, you, you know, that Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the chief. I relate to that scripture. Right? He didn't die to save me because I'm a great whatever, because I'm a good pastor, because I can preach, or because I understand the Bible. That's not why he died to save me. He died to save me because I am a sinner, and I couldn't save myself. That's it. So it's not about that. So I don't, I truly try, right? and I'm not going to lie to you. There will be Sunday mornings uh, where you come in, and, and you may leave going, wow, dude, Jason was in a good mood. He was in, and I was not. Right? I was not in a good mood. <laughs> I had a bad day. And if you ask me, usually I'll tell you the truth. At least I should. And if I ask you and I don't tell you the truth, you have my permission to call me out. And go, I know you're not okay. Why did you say you're okay? Because I'm not okay and I don't want to talk about it. Fair enough, right? But I don't want to be a hypocrite. The way you see me here is the way I want you. If you saw me in my home or you see me at Walmart, should be the same person, right? Flaws and all. A sinner saved by grace. Now, what does this teach us? And then we're going we're gonna to get close to closing, I think. Very simple. People are more important than rules. Now, I'm not saying we should ever compromise the word of God. But Jesus is teaching us here that man-made rules and traditions cannot be put above a person. I even think there's times where we take the Bible... I know I used to do this. I'm grateful that I don't usually do it anymore. But there's times when we take the Bible and we use it as a weapon against someone who's suffering or struggling. Or we use it as a weapon against someone who's outside the church. That's not why God gave us the Word of God. It is meant to be used as a weapon in our spiritual war. But who's that against? Right? Our spiritual war is not against flesh and blood. I want to use the word of God in my life and in our church to, right, if you need to be corrected, then let the word of God correct you. If you need to be instructed, let the word of God instruct you. If you need to be encouraged or comforted or whatever it might be, that's what the word of God is for. But I don't want to beat you over the head with it. Right? If you ever leave church on a Sunday and you feel guilty about something, well, that's between you and God because I'm going to do my best not to make you feel guilty. I want the Holy Spirit to convict you. I want the Holy Spirit to convict me and I want him to do that because we're teaching the word of God clearly. But my goal is not to make you feel bad. If you have a realistic view of who you are as a human being and a sinner, you feel bad enough already. I know I do. But I used to use it as a weapon. I used to beat people over the head with it. All, not literally, even though sometimes I felt like it. I used to tear people apart because I knew the word of God better than they did. And they couldn't argue with me. That was wrong. I have repented over that so many times, it hurts. When I wrote that down, sitting in my office, 
I repented over it again. Like, Lord, I'm sorry that I... Stop it. I'm sorry that I ever did that. I'm sorry that I ever did that to anybody. Because that's not what a shepherd does. Romans 13.10 Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. People are more important than rules. Now, I am not going to affirm a sinful lifestyle in contradiction to Scripture because people are more important. But I'm also not going to hate somebody who's maybe living in a sinful lifestyle because they're living in a sinful lifestyle. I want to love them. I want to share the gospel with them. I want them to know how much God loves them and what he has done to save them so that hopefully they will listen and repent and we can go to heaven together. So, real quick and then we'll close. The believer and the Sabbath. Now, we've done this before, um, but we're going to do it again. And I want to take a moment to talk about the Sabbath, a day that Israel was commanded to set aside for rest and worship in the Ten Commandments, which you can find in Exodus 20. Now, of the Ten Commandments, Jesus reiterated nine of them in the Gospels. The only one he did not command us to keep is the Sabbath. Because he is Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew 12, 8, and as we just read here in Luke 6, and because Hebrews 4 and Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, among other places, remind us that he is our rest, and he has invited us into that rest. So here's the question. Do we as believers have to keep the Sabbath? No. And yes. Let me explain. No, we do not have to keep any portion of the law in order to be saved. This is what it means to enter his rest and to cease from our works. If you weren't with us when we went through Hebrews chapter 4, go listen uh, at the end of Hebrews 3 into Hebrews chapter 4. Um, we talk about this at great length. See, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf. So when we receive his free gift of salvation through his death and resurrection, we are saved and we don't have to do anything to earn it or keep it. Jesus has done it all. Hallelujah. Praise God. Right? Highly encourage you. Go read uh, Colossians 2, 13 through 15 when you have time, because that's exactly what it says. That God has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. He took it away and nailed it to the cross. So no, we don't have to keep the Sabbath. And if anybody looks at you and says, well, you better keep the Sabbath or you're not going to heaven, you can go, uh-uh. And take these scriptures and gently instruct them about why they're wrong. And if they refuse to agree with you, then you can tell them, well, I feel really bad for you because I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus did. If you think you're going to heaven because you take a specific day of the week off, you're in a lot of trouble. So no, we don't have to keep the Sabbath. Do we have to keep the Sabbath, though? Yeah, we do. Confused yet? Although Jesus is our rest, and our salvation rests solely in him and his finished work on the cross, it is still very, 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 very wise to practice a Sabbath. 
we can actually practice the Sabbath as a spiritual discipline. Over the last year or so, I've encouraged you to practice a time of silence and solitude as a spiritual discipline. Last week, we talked about fasting as a spiritual discipline. We have other spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible, prayer, being in church, serving others. There's a, there's a host of spiritual disciplines that we as followers of Christ should practice. And the Sabbath is one of them. We don't practice them in order to get saved. We practice them because we are saved. And there's a really big difference. Setting aside a day just to rest and to worship is extremely beneficial for our spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being. One of my favorite quotes out there is, if you don't make time for your wellness, you will be forced to make time for your illness. It's just true. Now, what does rest and worship look like in your life and mine? I typically find it very restful to play pickleball. Not always. Just, you know, for anybody, you already know. But I find it restful. So somebody might, oh, well, it's not, it's not your day off if you're playing pickleball. Yes, it is. It's actually really a day off if I'm playing pickleball. Because I can get out there, and I can play, and I love helping people learn, and I forget about everything else, and I play pickleball. That's restful for me. Right? What does it look like for you? Maybe it's sitting in front of the TV with a container of ice cream. You're watching. Well, I'll do that and I'll watch pickleball, which I also find enjoyable. Um, I'm a little obsessed, you already know. But it, that's not going to look the same for every person. But you have a day where you kind of, not, not that you pretend you don't have responsibilities, but you just go, I'm not going to deal with them today. Right? That can wait till Monday. I can, I, today I'm going to sleep in. I'm going to eat waffles. I'm going to play a little pickleball. Right? I'm not going to go shopping unless it's because I forgot to got, buy ice cream for my Sabbath rest. Right? <laughs> right? But maybe you go for a hike. Maybe now that it's nice, you go sit by the river and you go fishing. May, I, don't, I don't care what it is for you. But do you do it? It's healthy. It's good for us. And... And I love this because it's not something we always think about. The Sabbath becomes an expression of our faith. I'm going to take today off. I'm not going to worry about the deadline. I'm not going to worry about what I need to get done. I'm just going to rest today. And I'm going to trust that God's going to help me take care of that when the time comes. Practicing a Sabbath. It's just like tithing which is another spiritual practice. We're going to send the plates around again in a moment. No, I'm joking. You know me better than that. But it's just like that is an act of faith as well. I'm going to give God back some of the money that he's given me because I trust him to provide for my needs. So I have a really long quote for you and then I promise we'll close. I've said that like four times now. It's not a lie if I had good intentions, right? This is a quote from John Mark Comer. Ultimately, nothing in this life apart from God can satisfy our desires. Oh, just let that sink in for a moment. Tragically, we continue to chase after our desires ad infinitum. The result, a chronic state of restlessness, or worse, angst, anger, anxiety, disillusion, and depression. 
all of which lead to a life of hurry, a life of busyness, overload, shopping, materialism, careerism, a life of more, which in turn makes us even more restless. And the spiral, or and the cycle spirals out of control. Does that not describe our culture today? Right? That's why Sabbath is an expression of faith. And this is still the quote. Faith that there is a creator and he's good. We are his creation. This is his world. We live under his roof. We drink his water, eat his food, breathe his oxygen. So on the Sabbath, we don't just take a day off from work. We take a day off from toil. We give him all our fear and anxiety and stress and worry. We let go. We stop ruling and subduing, and we just be. We remember our place in the universe so that we never forget there is a God, and I'm not him. I've recommended it before, but if you have never read The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer, I highly recommend it. John Mark Comer, I watch your sermons, so if you ever watch one of mine, I want like a signed copy or something. He doesn't watch my sermons. I'm sure of it. As we close, while practicing the Sabbath is a healthy and beneficial spiritual practice, it's not necessary in order for us to be saved or to remain saved. That was finished by Jesus, who is our rest, who calls us to find our rest in him. There are two, though, vital lessons for us in this passage. First, we do not treat the traditions or doctrines of men as commandments of God. This can include so many things, like a dress code, a certain order of service, a genre of music, and so on, right? The commandments of God are only found in Scripture. Second, hypocrisy has no place in the life of the believer. The Pharisees and other religious leaders, they looked really good on the outside. So much so that Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outward but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Matthew 23, 27. There's a great quote from Lord of the Rings. You guys think I'm done. I'm getting there. Got like three sentences to go, I promise. But there's a great quote in Lord of the Rings that talks about how the, the kings of old became more interested in the glory of their tombs than in the raising of their children doesn't matter how beautiful your tomb is, there's still a dead person inside. It doesn't matter how good the outside looks if that's not what's on the inside. And that's exactly what hypocrisy is. God has called us to live lives without hypocrisy. Not perfect lives, but lives that reflect the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. So three questions and we're done. Have you answered the invitation of Jesus to enter his rest and received his free gift of salvation? I ask it every week. I will ask it every time I preach until the day I die. And if there's ever a time when I don't, well, it's time to show me the door. Because we're here to preach the gospel. And we all need it. And if there's anybody here or anybody listening or anybody who hears this recording later and you have not received Christ as Savior, you have not receive forgiveness of sins based on his death and resurrection, then let us know. 
right? Leave me a message, uh, leave a comment, go to our website and send me an email. We want to help you know Christ is Savior. Number two, are there any traditions that we as individuals or we as a church are holding on to that are not commandments of God? I'm very grateful. This is one of the few churches I've ever been in that were not, that there were not a number of sacred cows, as it were. Right? There weren't a lot of things. Oh, you can't do that. Right? You can't do that. We, we, oh, no, no, we don't do that. Right? I've never been told that, and I'm very grateful for it. But sometimes we get that way. I don't know about you. Right? I'm perfect. I don't have this problem. But I have this problem. There are certain things, right? If I see another church do X, Y, or Z, I'm like, oh, that's so dumb. Why would you do that? Now, the one, it's a hill I'll die on, is smoke machines. I'm sorry. A church does not need smoke machines. You just don't need smoke machines. It's church. Right? If there's smoke in the church, that's because the preaching's on fire, not because of the smoke machine. I'm joking. Right, that's, that's, but I'm, I'm like, and every time I see a church, or if I see a video of a church, they've got smoke machines and light shows, I get very judgmental. I really shouldn't. I really shouldn't. But I do, because that bothers me. Uh, but we need to let go, right? Now, if we see somebody doing something that's contrary to the Word of God, that's different. We're standing on the Word of God. But... If we have little sacred cows of our own that we don't like, right? Little pet things. And we can do that so easily as Christians. Oh, you watch that kind of movie? Well, are you even saved? I won't tell you. I guess I probably said it. One of my favorite movies in the world is Die Hard. Don't watch Die Hard. It's an awful movie. But it's one of my favorite movies in the world. It's a Christmas movie! <laughs> right? Now, there's a fun argument between Bruce Willis, the star of Die Hard, and John McTiernan, the director. John McTiernan says it's a Christmas movie. Bruce Willis says it's not. I'm going to go with the director on this one because he agrees with me. Right? But I've had people, oh, you're, you're a pastor? And you've seen Die Hard? Yeah, like 40 times. You know, I don't think that makes me less of a Christian. I don't. What is Die Hard really about? You ready for this? You ready for me to blow your mind and, and you can go, wow, you're just rationalizing your sin. Yeah, a little bit. Die Hard is a movie about a one man who sacrifices himself for the lives of others. Sound familiar? It's got redemptive value. That's what I look for in my entertainment. Does it have redemptive value? But you might, right now somebody like, I'm not coming back to this church. That guy watches Die Hard. Be nice to me or I'll start quoting it. Well, okay, not all of it. There's parts I can't quote. That'd be wrong. But, but are we, do we have those little sacred cows that we hold on to? Right? Gotta let them go. Finally, are there any areas in our lives where we are being hypocritical? And if you say no, well, you're probably a liar. Because I know if I said no, I would be a liar. There are areas in my life where I'm a little bit hypocritical or sometimes a lot hypocritical depending on the day. And I don't want to be that way. We shouldn't want to be that way as followers of Christ. Look, I'm actually done. The notes are going away. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and you are just so good to each of us. I pray, Father, that if we have those little sacred cows in our own lives, and those little sacred cows don't bring you glory, which would be really hard for them to bring you glory, 
Father, that you'd help us deal with it. I pray, God, that you would give us the grace to recognize the areas in our lives where we are being hypocritical and that you would give us the strength to change that. I pray that you would always help us to understand that people are more important. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to, A, understand that we find our rest in Jesus, and B, give us the discipline to take a day where we're really undisciplined. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.